hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the stupid answer. Uh oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Don't worry, I got an idea. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Sack. Woohoo! Not that there's anything wrong with that. Because he has a lot of chips, Bob. <laughs> All right. Hello, and welcome to episode 387 of the Stupid Cancer Show, The Voice of Young Adult Cancer. I'm your host, Matthew Zachary, proud 20-year young adult brain cancer survivor coming to you now from the chemo deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. Broadcasting since 2007, the Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer, online at stupidcancer.org. I'm Mallory Rivera, program manager and co-producer of The Stupid Cancer Show, welcoming all our first-time and returning listeners. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes and following us on SoundCloud. It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer? Under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks. Because the stupid cancer show is changing the world one came on fusion at a time. Got a great show. Stupid Cancer, San Francisco. The Bay Area Young Survivors, otherwise known as the Bays, is a support and action group for young women in the San Francisco Bay Area who are living with breast cancer. Joining us to discuss how Bays provide support through monthly meetings, an online network and community building events are Megan Campbell, President, Lori Pomeranz, Marriage and Family Therapist, and a survivor spotlight on Pro Wakeboarder, Adventure Author, and Young Adult Cancer Survivor, Alexa Score. All right, gonna be a great show. Hello, Mallory. Hello. Program manager. Yeah. And co producer. <laughs> All the things. All the things. Hello, Sean. Hey. How you doing? Good. What's going on? Not much. A little, no. little bronzed from my, my weekend outside watching the Polo what, Classic. What, what is this strange weather we're having where there's sunlight and, and warmth? Yes. Yes. It was wonderful out. It's great. It's yeah. also a little horrifying if you're allergic to the sun. That is true. <laughs> that is true. For uh, the, the, My daughter is, is pretty much like uh, as bleached flour as possible. So yep. she gets pretty greased up with the, uh, the lotions and all that stuff. Anyway, that sounded terrible. But everyone knows what I meant. Hopefully. In any case. It's nice out. Happy post-National Cancer Survivors Day. Yesterday was a really big deal around the world. 28 million cancer survivors all celebrating what we do, who we are. Um, by the way, I posted this on our Facebook wall. 600,000 views. Not bad. That's pretty awesome that's, right there. That's off our charts by our, our standards. Yeah, so that's the thing. People love it. It's worthwhile. It makes a difference. I had the privilege of speaking at Stony Brook Medicine or Stony Brook University uh, way out in Long Island. For those of Yay, you Long not Island. living in New York City, way out, like way out in Long Island. But uh, about six, seven, 700 people showed up. It was great. I spoke for an hour and a half or so. And uh, it was wonderful. Really great to meet a lot of people. A lot of young people showed up. A lot of families came. And I always, you know, not, not worried about like when the older generations show up, how do they react to me? I, I eliminated all cursing. I and I, I needed a, we needed approval on our CancerCon sizzle video because there's so many middle fingers. <laughs> so yeah. a very generational experience for me to get out there, um, but they loved it. Got applause. You know, I, I mean, I, I feel like should we allay our fears? Everyone's gonna love who we are. Middle finger be damned. Yeah, <laughs> let's do it. Let's just accept it. 
Uh, Tis better to ask for forgiveness <laughs> than to ask for permission. No, it was it was really. I mean, it rained toward the end, but it was a really it was wonderful, uh, exciting stuff. And those things happen year round uh, around the country every uh, every weekend. Yeah, we had a lot of volunteers running uh, tables on behalf of stupid cancer all over the country. I saw that too. Um, I also saw that Angel Reynoso is having a, a CD release party or something. He is tomorrow evening in Denver. That's right. With, with the help of some of our, our friends that are out there. Yeah, so if you're listening out there to the show and you're in Denver, check it out. Um, AngelRayOfLight.com. I think the information's on his website. Yeah, I believe it is, yes. Awesome, awesome, cool. Uh, Sean, how are we doing? Team Stupid Cancer, new logo, new, new website, new everything. Lots of good stuff. We got the official page launched on Facebook. And uh, yeah, we're super excited. It's a program that we've had for some time now, but it's really uh, picked up. And so um, traditionally, our big events are the New York City Marathon and the New York City Half Marathon, uh, which we still have in our portfolio of races, um, but have a lot of new exciting ones, um, including Ragnar Relay, which is a a version of that, but you're running from city to city with a team of 12 people. It's it's a lot of fun. So the big one coming up is in Napa Valley this November, uh, November 4th to 5th, and we are recruiting runners. So if anyone out there is interested, um, we are uh, taking on some more teammates. So get really excited. And then we also have a 5K out there in Long Beach, California coming up uh, October 7th. Uh, so we're really excited. TeamStupidCancer.org. That's it. That's or... T-S-C at stupidcancer.org. That's go. the email address. You got it. Yeah, and we got um, Toast coming up this fall. Toast.stupidcancer.org. We'll be formally launching it big big time next week, I hope. Um, go wide with it and see a lot of interesting things happen, hopefully. Yeah. And um, just to quick out uh, this uh, opening segment here, Biden gave the closing keynote at ASCO, um, I think yesterday, and he talked about the moonshot. <clears throat> I've already been approached by... You know, Sean Parker, uh, the guy who invented Napster, he's throwing all of his money into cancer immunotherapy, which he's calling the uh, hacking cancer. I think it's a hashtag hacking cancer. And my, my, my response is always nothing really matters unless people have access to things and can afford to pay for them. So not really an immediate response, but like, am I being unnecessarily cynical or is it good that people are trying to figure out the science of this stuff? Biden keeps talking about cure, and even on NPR today, they had all these cancer scientists like debunking the word cure, which for me is fabulous. I don't like the word cure, but what do you think? It, it's a tough one. I think the the general population likes that word. <laughs> uh, it's easy. Yeah, it's it's easy to explain to to those who don't know. No, and I think that's going to be the rub here. Is you know you get the public excited about it, but once then they get cancer and they can't afford it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, it's, it's a whole other. We could do a whole sh- We Actually, we will be doing a whole show about that uh, at some point in the future. But it's exciting stuff. Exciting stuff. And I just really, I love this a thing. I love that the country's rallying around it. I love that Biden's owning something post vice presidency. It, it is pretty, pretty awesome in general. Yeah, really cool. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's start our show. In our spotlight, you're going to love this. Alexa scores a pro wakeboarder, adventurer, author, and cancer survivor from a small town in Minnesota, now living in Orlando, Florida, travels the world for wakeboarding, modeling, and other various endeavors. Please welcome to the show our very first pro wakeboarder young adult survivor, Alexa Score. Hello. Hello. I feel like we should uh, have some kind of award for you, pro wakeboarder, young adult survivor, <laughs> World traveler. That's a, that's a LinkedIn profile I've not seen before. Uh it's a it's a very interesting profile for sure. My uh, my resume is quite long, but pretty pretty uh, stoked to be able to do all the things I do. Yeah, and having fun. What I love about your story is that you have a you were diagnosed with a cancer called chronic myeloid leukemia (CML), which was one of the very first, we were just discussing the word cure at the top because Joe Biden gave a keynote about cure yesterday. Um, CML is one of those cancers where the word cure is thrown around a lot because it, it, the, the technology of the, the, the medicine that you take when you have that kind of puts mm-hmm. it at bay for a while, but you're still at risk and there's some new drugs out there and it's, it's, you're not quite out of the woods. Would you be willing to talk to us about that point? 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's kind of an interesting thing and kind of hard for people to understand at this point because, you know, this technology is so new and this drug that I'm on is so new. So the situation is just very unique. So I have a chronic leukemia or chronic cancer, which in itself is kind of odd for people like, wait, you know, you're living with cancer, you're being treated, but I'm not technically in remission. So people are always like, oh, you must be in remission. I'm like, well, no, technically, no, I'm not. You know, there still is cancer present, but it's being controlled. So it enables uh, patients like me to live with these cancers. And and I think it's something that we're going to see more and more and more of, and it'll become kind of a normal thing, people living with with these chronic diseases. Um, I kind of call it this modern day survivor. This is what I've I've termed it because it's just a very unique situation and kind of new for people who aren't familiar with, you know, the breakthroughs and the different stuff going on in the cancer arena. No, and it speaks exactly to what we were discussing at the top of the show, which is the word cure and that the public mm-hmm. likes the word cure. And <clears throat> as more and more people are living with, through, beyond, and beyond with cancer, what does that really mean to the word cure and how? what does that due to public sentiment and public awareness about research. Right. And I mean, you know, this, I would say this drug that I'm on right now is about as close as we've got, you know, for, for, especially for this specific form of cancer, but, um, it's a fine line, you know, it's, you know, I'm able to live this relatively normal and, and healthy lifestyle, you know, granted there are a number of side effects that I deal with every day from the medication, but you know, it's, it, it's, you're riding this fence of, are you cured? Are you not? And we're getting into this area where, you know, people are starting to try to go off the drug and see if they can remain, you know, if that cancer can stay low without the drug. So it's, we're kind of in this gray area and and it's still experimental. And, and obviously everyone loves the, the other C word, which is cure. And, uh, it's a very, very exciting thing. And I think we're close. Um, but you know, this, the way I live is, is the second best thing to being cured. So I'll uh, take what I can get at this point. <laughs> hey, I don't know if you uh, are familiar with her, but I have a friend named Erin Zamet Ruddy. And Erin was one of the very first women who went on Gleevec uh, over 10 years ago. Okay. She worked with Glamour magazine. And Oh, really? No, I've <clears throat> not heard her name. Yeah. I mean, I can email you her, her stuff. She's widely published and was kind of the face of young adult cancer before there was a movement. She wrote a book mm-hmm. called My So-Called Normal Life, and it went. It was obviously produced by either Hachette or, or whoever ran Glamour. I forget who ran Condé Nast or whatever. But um, she was a real spokesperson for what Gleevec meant at the time. When, when and, and But her story is interesting because she went off Gleevec. To your point, she went off Gleevec and risked her life to have a baby. Right. Be- yes. And then she went back on it, and, she, and then she did it three more times. And now she has a wonderful family, and she's still taking Gleevec every day. But that is the young adult story. That's why we're different. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, you know, when you are diagnosed as a young adult, you're going through all these transitions, and you have to think about those things, you know, like starting a family. When I was diagnosed, I was 16, and um, that this was 10 years ago now as well. And because Gleevec was so new, they thought I was going to have to have a bone marrow transplant, and... You know, I had a doctor look at me and say, if you don't have a bone marrow transplant, you're going to die. And then he said, you will never be able to have kids because at that time there was the fertility thing was also a very different uh, story than it is now. But, you know, to have to think about that as a 16 year old, that was something I, you know, had never considered, um, you know, or hadn't considered seriously. You know, you're not thinking about starting a family. So to hear that your whole world gets kind of turned upside down and you're you're thrown into a place where you've got to act like a grown-up you know now we're now it's time to make some big decisions so it is unique being diagnosed as a young person and just um you know having to go through some different things that adults don't have to deal with it fascinates me to hear you talk about how a 16 year old girl was made aware of reproductive risk 10 years ago when we just did a national study and found out that 13 percent of women diagnosed in their fertile years are made aware of that so you were not only in a good place at the right time with the right doctors, but you, you got lucky to even have that conversation. As awkward as it might have been to be 16, right. that was, that's, a, that's very impressive. 
Yeah, no, it was it was crazy, and I I'm so lucky to have had incredible uh, medical care. I'm I'm very pleased with the doctors that I was kind of thrown into. You know, we hadn't done any research. It was all right. You know, I'm in this small town. They're like, you're going to the city to see a specialist. We didn't really do our research, and we didn't know what was going on. So I just totally lucked out on on that. But um, yeah, it's it's a wild thing to get that thrown in your face. But at least I was made aware, like you said. Um, you know, a lot of stuff gets lost in that communication deal between patient and caregiver, and and I was lucky to bridge that gap at a lot of very pivotal times. Well, I want to hear more about. We have a lot of teenagers that be cancer that join Stupid Cancer. When I started the organization ten years ago, I never really pitched it as a community for children who grow up. It was really more for people who got cancer actually in their 20s and 30s. But Mm -hmm. I then realized that I got cancer at 21 in pediatrics, and I am my own drinking Kool-Aid person here. But (laughs) here's a fun, interesting stat. Fun fact of the day, there are nearly 450,000 Americans who beat cancer under 18 and are now under 40. So that speaks to progress, but that speaks to side effects and fertility and quality of life and all that. So I want you to talk about, you know, 16 with cancer. Actually, our board chair was 16 when she was diagnosed in high school with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So it's probably very similar. Were you alienated? Was Did the school bend over backwards for you? Was there response from the community? What was it like for you 10 years ago? You know, it was it was interesting. And I think it's also unique. Just I mean, I, I my hometown has a thousand people in it. So we're pretty tight knit community. Um, everyone's in a everyone's business. So I was kind of this, I was the zombie. I was always full of life and energy and kind of this troublemaker, but got awesome grades was just kind of center of attention. And when I got sick, I was moping around the halls and my, the people around me, you know, were like, weren't really sure what's going on, but they had never, ever seen me in this vulnerable, um, low energy, very disconnected, um, state. So it was really interesting for me. I've learned most looking back and and understanding now that people just hadn't didn't know what to think and they didn't know what to say and they didn't know how to approach it and they didn't know how I wanted to be approached. And so I I felt distant at the time. I didn't feel necessarily abandoned, but I did feel like, you know, you kind of get that feeling like, man. No one else really knows what's, what I'm going through right now, you know, how tough this is and how much pain I'm in and how sick I feel. And I did have the support. And, you know, my friends had to drive me to and from school when my parents couldn't do it because I was so heavily medicated. And, and so, you know, people stepped up when they had to. But, again, it's that communication thing. And, and there's no real right way to approach it, unfortunately. And everyone's, you know, try, kind of t- tiptoeing around the subject, trying not to make me feel uncomfortable, but sometimes you want people to ask you about it. So, um, you know, I'm so thankful my community was there when I needed them to be. And my teachers luckily held a meeting with my dad and he filled them in right away. So they allowed me to, you know, put my head on my desk, not to come to class, do whatever I needed to do, um, which made it, you know, so much easier on me. But it's it's never an easy situation for really anyone because everyone's different. Everyone handles those types of things differently. So um, it's it's a sensitive subject. But, you know, I had the support when I needed it. And uh, it's been really fun 10 years later to go back and actually ask people about it. You know, how did you feel? You know, I've been writing this book that I hope to have published here in about six months. And uh, it's the first time. It's since my diagnosis that I've talked to people about it. So it's been really, really actually a treat to go back and talk to my teachers, talk to my friends, talk to the people who are around me and say, well, what were you feeling? What were you thinking? And, you know, kind of see their side of the story. And it's really been eye-opening. We talk about how cancer is a disease of the family. But if you really grew up in the land of a thousand lakes with literally a thousand people in your town, one for for each lake, I guess, then... (laughs) how that must have been a cancer was a disease of the community. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was um, a team effort. I mean, I would, I would say, you know, I was, I was fighting cancer, but 
the reason I survived was because of the community and because everyone stepped up and, you know, my gymnastics coaches allowed me to, you know, come to the gym and mope around if I needed just to be in the gym and be around my friends. And like I said, everyone else, you know, one day I was so sick and my parents were working and no one could bring me home. The school nurse is like, I'll drive you home. You know, it, it was, it was like, okay, you know, we're going to bend the rules a little bit here because, you know, this is a, this is a situation and we're going to, you know, really focus on your needs instead of just doing protocol. So everyone really stepped up and, and, um, was there for me and they've been my biggest supporters since then, you know, following my wakeboarding career and all the other stuff I have going on. So it's, it's been really cool because I, I give them a lot of credit for my success and why I'm able to do the things I'm doing now because they stepped up when I got sick. And so it's allowed me to, you know, go do all these awesome things with wakeboarding and and the other stuff in the entertainment um, industry. So it's really cool. They're they're definitely part of my journey. No, it's it's emblematic of how you have gotten busy living. And even at 16, were you, yes, you grew up on, on the lake. Uh, obviously, because yep. I don't think you can't grow up on a lake if you grow up in Minnesota. <laughs> it's tough. <Yeah. laughs> it's definitely tough. But is that that? I assume that's where you found your love of water. Absolutely. Yep. I grew up on the lake and uh, started water skiing when I was about eight years old. I was a show skier with a water show ski team here, and and actually did that professionally for a couple of years when I was sixteen. And when I was fourteen, got really into wakeboarding and and got serious about it. And that was kind of you know, two years before I got sick. So when I got sick, it was like one of one of my biggest, you know, what was probably most upsetting to me was I'm not going to be able to be on the lake this summer because, you know, because we didn't know what was going to happen. And that was kind of something that motivated me and was like, wait a minute. Yes, I am. And I'm going to, you know, do what I need to do so I can be on the lake. And sure enough, that next summer I was out there. Um but yep, grew up on the lake, and and this is where I fell in love, fell in love with water sports. No, and and obviously it was something that was a passion of yours before you were sick, and you got to reclaim that at at you know, and and it's now something that you are doing as a career. It's amazing, right? And how right. how have you been leveraging? By the way, you're on Twitter at, at Alexa Score. You have a website or, or an Instagram as well. I. I have an Instagram. It's a dot score. A score is what a lot of people call me. So that is my Instagram account. Um, I also have a blog and a Facebook page. Um, if you just look up Alexa score on Facebook, there's only one of me. Um, that is your there. real name. That is your real name, right? <laughs> That's the best real name ever. Yeah, I know. I, I lucked out for sure. Um, so you can find all of my social media handles and my. Uh, the link to my blog is also on my Facebook page. So we have about two minutes left, but I want to hear more about this PBS thing that you shot because that sounds amazing. Yeah, so um, the the local PBS affiliate here in Minnesota reached out to me last winter, and they've been, you know, we've been talking about doing something for the past few years, but this winter we, we got it lined up, and we shot uh, a little documentary, and they put together a 30-minute um, doc on my story which really just kind of scratches the surface, but it, it just shows, you know, tells the story of this young girl growing up in Minnesota in a small town and, and spending the winters ice fishing, spending the summers on the lake and, you know, what I've done um, with, with myself since moving out of here. But, but also it, it really shows I've been, that I've been successful because of where I came from. And that's something that I really wanted to portray in the piece as well. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm traveling the world and doing all these great things, but I wouldn't be doing those if I wasn't from this great little community here in Minnesota. So it's a really neat piece and it's aired here in, um, in Minnesota and it's also online, but we'll be getting national distribution, uh, this summer on, uh, many other PBS affiliates across the nation. Um, and then kind of neat. I had a, I filmed, I wakeboarded in a TV commercial that aired this weekend on ESPN. It's been airing for life proof. So that's kind of neat too. And, um, everyone's pretty excited about that. Look at you go. That's pretty great. I said, look at you go. (laughs) Yeah. All kinds of different stuff. I'm all over the board. No, so proud. And we're, so now we're, we're formally best friends for life. So we'll definitely have you back on the show and we'd love to, if I'm ever down, 
in Orlando, I will look you up. But clearly, you're you're the club. You've always been in the club. You belong in the club. We're happy to have you. Uh, Alexis Score. I'm happy to be here. A Score. Alexis Score. I love that nickname. Uh, pro wakeboarder, adventure author, uh, cancer survivor, CML, 10-year CML survivor living on Gleevec, uh, emblematic of the young adult cancer movement. Alexa, thank you so much for sharing your story with us here on the Stupid Cancer Show. You're welcome, and thanks for having me. It was a blast. All right. Take care. Be well. All right, and now the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That's events.stupidcancer.org. Sign up for meetup alerts and never miss a meetup again. If you'd like to learn more about hosting your own Stupid Cancer meetup, visit stupidcancer.org slash meetup. We have meetups happening in... Mesa, Arizona, New York, New York, Baltimore, West Chicago, and Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Absolutely fantastic. No one should face cancer alone because isolation sucks. Download Instapeer for iPhone, iPad, and Android. Create your account and instantly start messaging with someone just like you who's been there and walked in your shoes. Instant anonymous peer support can be yours right now on your mobile device. Join our community of thousands of cancer patients, survivors, and caregivers right now. Instapeer. We've launched a newsfeed aggregator on Tumblr for all the articles, blogs, and stories we couldn't possibly have time to post on social media. Check out what we're reading 24-7 and don't miss a beat. Subscribe at stupidcancer.org slash feed. If you've not yet checked out the Stupid Cancer Community Forums, you are missing out. Join thousands of your peers in a safe and meaningful online environment to get connected, swap stories, learn from one another, and foster the young adult conversation. With hundreds of topics, discussion groups, and issues to choose from, it's a great place to get busy living. Learn more at stupidcancer.org slash community. Support our programs and services by heading over to stupidcancerstore.org. You'll feel great and look great in your new Stupid Cancer gear. That's stupidcancerstore.org. Be proud. Wear stupid cancer. And that is your stupid cancer news. All right. Joining us here on the Stupid Cancer San Francisco segment here, Megan Hakari Campbell. I'm going to box these up. Uh, diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 32, lives in San Francisco with her husband by way of a small town in southern Illinois. President of a support group that serves over 400 women. And joining her is Lori Pomerantz, diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 41, lives also in San Francisco with her husband and teenage son, marriage and family therapist, and a former board member of the Bay Area Young Survivors. We're very excited to focus our efforts on young adult breast cancer in the Bay Area with Megan Campbell and Lori Pomerantz. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. Thanks so much for having us. Yo, it's been a long time coming, and I was mentioning before we uh, got on the air that I miss San Francisco. I don't get out there nearly as much as I'd like to. The Bay Area used to be someplace at home for me because my aunt used to live there for, like, my entire upbringing. I was out in San Mateo and, like, and for years, like, all the time, and I miss it. Nice. Well, I already told you. Well, when you tell us when you come out, and we'll, we'll make sure you know well, you have a great time. No, I, I we're we're besties for life, so I'm, I'm obligated at this point. Now I can't I can't ever say totally. no. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I'm excited. Not that you had breast cancer, but that you chose to give back, and that you're organizing a really interesting community outreach group, uh, serving a very niche and underserved market that I know all too well from my work. But I was hoping you'd be willing to share your personal stories getting diagnosed with cancer not at the age of eighty and how that's incredibly different. Yeah. Megan, do you want to go first, or do you want me to? Sure, sure. Um, so I was diagnosed. I was 32. I had been married just under a year. Um, my husband and I just bought a house. I was in a graduate program, and my arm brushed against my lump, and I actually thought it was like a broken rib sticking out somehow. <laughs> Turns out it wasn't. Um, happily, my OBGYN got me in right away and she took me seriously um, and very quickly within a few days got a mammogram 
biopsy and um, uh, ultrasound, the radiologist hugged me and told me about the wonders of breast reconstruction, and the doctor gave me her cell phone to call her with any questions over the weekend, and I probably should have known right at that moment how they were treating me that it was going to be cancer. Um, so I got the news just a couple of days later, and as you know, and the listeners know, your world, my world was turned completely upside down. It was a shock. No family history or anything like that. Just out of the blue. No reason, out no rhyme. Period. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I would say that it's, A, what I'm hearing is good news and that you were taken seriously out of the gate. I have consistently asked communities if getting diagnosed through an OBGYN for any kind of gynecologic or breast cancer fast-tracks you to a better diagnosis or not, or if is it just wholly dependent on who's there, or if you don't go to OBGYN for this stuff. But that's great that you were mm-hmm. kind of put in that track. Is there a reason they didn't say cancer out of the gate too, or they were waiting for results or you had that like crazy six days of waiting? Yeah, the crazy six days of waiting um, for the biopsy results. And to your first point, I talked later when I was in treatment and chemo. Um, I wrote my OB a letter and thanked her for taking me seriously. Um, she called me right away after she got the letter and said, you know, I've learned my lesson the hard way before. Um, and it, I'd rather just be safe than sorry. And we hear so many stories in our community of women who weren't taken seriously and um, had to really advocate for themselves in, in a million different ways before the diagnosis was handed to them. Uh, Lori, did you have a similar situation or was it like the opposite and terrifying in a different way? Um Mine was interesting, and I had never knew that piece before, Megan, that your doctor said, I learned this the hard way, and I won't do that again. And I'm so sorry she learned it the hard way, but I'm so grateful because just like you said, so many people are blown off, like you're too young, you're nursing, oh, you're pregnant, oh, you were just nursing, and it's like this is needs to be taken seriously. My story, Matt, was that I had a clean mammogram, um, and then four months later, I was shaving my armpits in the shower, and I got out, and I, like, checked my armpits in the mirror to make sure I'd gotten a good, clean shave, and my breast just did not look normal when I lifted my arm up over my head, and it had never looked that way before. So I kind of noticed a change in shape, and that was how I sort of called the doctor and said, something looks different, and um, I went in and made a, an appointment with somebody who I'd never seen before. It was just kind of the, they, they really fast track it. I said, my breath looks different and they wanted me in the next day. And she, um, in fact, it's ridiculous. They wanted me in at like one o'clock the next day. And I said, I can't, it's opening day for the giants. Like that's. <laughs> and so I was like, can I come in Monday morning? And she said, okay, I'll book it for Monday morning, but I'm going to put a note here that I offered you something sooner. And you said, no. I was like, oh, for God's sake, I'm being really stupid. So I sat with that for a couple hours, and then I called back, and I said, okay, is there any way I can get seen, like, early in the day? So she said, well, if you go to our satellite office, which was in another town, not even in San Francisco, they could see me at 8 in the morning. So that's what I did. And um, I came in, and she's like, I'm really glad you came in, and you need a biopsy. And then she hugged me, and I sobbed in the car, howling, like, I'm dead. She hugged me. She's never met me before. I just was a wreck and I got the biopsy my husband met me there on opening day at one o'clock and then uh got the call on Monday that it was cancer I still think and then you, it was just you know the fast track from there with all this stuff you, you probably you know should, what? You, you, you probably should have just called Major League Baseball and asked them to bump the game <laughs> why didn't I think of that uh, next no I was just gonna say next no time. no no next time Brown, no next no time, next time. <laughs> sit on the ground that's what my grandmother would have done so one of the issues that i'm sure you are fully aware of that we deal with every day is this notion of isolation cancer uh, under 40 45 is very rare it's like one in six mm-hmm. uh well i'm sorry six in a hundred is cancer mm-hmm. under 40 45 did you meet or know or connect with i mean you know each other now but any other young women that were going through breast cancer at the time I found Bayes really quickly after I was diagnosed, and at my very first meeting, I met like these amazing women, and it was just a really instant kind of safe home uh, going through this crazy 
experience. And my son now, you know, years now that I'm years out, says, why are you still hanging out with these people? You aren't going through treatment anymore. And I said, well, these people are my dear, dear friends now. I mean, we, we've gone through everything together. So, Megan, you're now president of Bayes. Um, I can only imagine how rewarding that is for you to be part of a group like, and again, to your point, Ma, why are you still doing this? Well, you're giving back now to the people who didn't know they needed the help, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I am. Um, so, Bayes, the Bay Area and Survivors, we have over 400 women, and we know that we don't want new members, really. But we get new members each week. Um, and I was, when I was first diagnosed, I met with a nurse practitioner who helped set up a bunch of different appointments with surgeons, oncologists, fertility doctor, um, right out the gate after my diagnosis. And she gave me a card for the Bay Area Young Survivors. And I put it in that big, massive pile of papers and put it on the desk and kind of forgot about it for a couple weeks. Um, but then as I was going through materials, I reached out to Bayes and have been a member now for uh, almost four years since I was diagnosed. And I would say that Bayes is like it's like the beacon in, in the night for a lot of women um, who come in who are, as you know, when you're diagnosed, like completely lost, never even you don't understand the biology of cancer, yet alone how to navigate the treatments, how what's within your right as a patient to seek a second opinion, a third opinion, um, and health insurance, and all of those things. I think that's been an amazing community for me to be part of. I would never have been able to get through what I've gotten through so far without the women of base. So how... And Megan, old- another... Oh, sorry. I was going to ask, how, how old is BASE and who, how was it founded? It is, we are over 10 years old now. We were founded by a group of women who were diagnosed when they were um, in their 30s, early 40s, um, some even in their 20s. And they were going to support groups at hospitals um, with grandmas, right? And those grandmas were talking about their grandkids and um you know, not really the same types of issues. And so these women started meeting in one of their living rooms and Bayes grew from there um, because it's a community of, um, you know, we're all, none of us have entered menopause before we were diagnosed. And that's kind of, while we have an age range around 45 years old, really the defining factor is what our issues are like we're raising small children we're launching our careers we haven't entered menopause we're dealing with fertility and dating um and those issues of young adults and that's that's really how the women who started base found each other and then um it grew from there so the issues of peer support are incredibly relevant in young adults it is you to your point like Grandma's talking about how do I get back to my retirement home and my what do I tell my grandchildren and all these things and where at a point in time where it's hard enough, let alone raising a teenage son, my twins are six. Uh, when you're well, it's hard enough being well when you're just trying to do your do your stuff under 45. What would you say is, I mean, for me, I didn't meet my first peer for seven years. It took me mm, 96 wow. to 2002 to finally meet a kid who had cancer in college. I wouldn't even have cared what kind of cancer this kid had. I just wanted to meet somebody who knew what it was like. Turned out he did have brain, brain cancer, so that was good. But why do you, I mean, how does Bayes market itself? It sounds like you were able to find it pretty quickly, which is amazing, but that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. It's a struggle. I think it's a struggle for us um, because we have flyers in hospitals um, we have business cards, we table at different events, and obviously we have a web presence and we're on Facebook and we just got on Twitter, but it's all, um, you know, there's a lot of turnover in hospitals or with nurses, so it it feels as though it's a constant education effort, um, and we still get women who are in the hospitals where we have flyers um, who hadn't heard about us for a year while they're getting treated 
And then they come and say, wow, I've been at this hospital. I never heard about it. Nobody ever mentioned you. So it's a, it's a constant challenge for us. We also get a lot you know, of referrals in some friends. That's what I was just going to say. I feel like yeah. it's so much word of mouth. Yeah. People yeah. reach out to us when they have a friend who's diagnosed and we plug them into base. It happens all the time that people, you know, reach out and say, so-and-so told me about you, you know, because we're the ones that people reach out to now when they have a friend somewhere who got diagnosed. So, Lori, I mean, you are a marriage and family therapist. That must mm-hmm. be a very comforting skill to have. Clearly, if you're married, cancer can be a significant challenge to that marriage. It can make or break in certain yeah. cases. We've had many people on the show, even people on our board of directors and personal friends whose spouses or fiancés even just left them the day they were diagnosed with or without children. Yeah. I've seen it happen in our own community, too. It's a real... It's a real strain on a relationship, and it also can be this amazing confirmation of just the love and commitment that a partner can have for the partners can have for one another. And my husband was—he just kept saying that taking care, you know, being there for me when I was sick was like just—he said he just had to remember what it was like after I gave birth. Like his job is to take care of me. Right. Like after I had our son, my job kind of there was a lot only I could do for our son. And the same with cancer treatment. There's a lot that only I could do. And what he could do was take care of me. And that's what he focused on and take care of our son. And it was so, he was so amazing. Um, just knowing how to focus in that way. And he, but I think that he, that requires a tremendous amount of generosity of spirit and of love and of loyalty. And not everyone gets that. And it's heartbreaking. I mean, to watch people go through this incredible trauma and, tragedy in their life and then have their husband I remember one or your husband was like this isn't fun at all like I don't even want to have sex with you anymore like and he was out yeah yep so the issues I I can only imagine the issues that are discussed at the meetings and amongst the community are are fairly average in the young adult space isolation fear Mm -hmm. fertility parenting recurrence side effects uh, is anything particularly stick out uh, to you guys? PTSD. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how do you guys ma- manage that? What is your what is your support recommendations to women fighting? You know, you're, we always say, like, it ain't over when it's over or when the doctor says go home. It's never the end of the story. Right. You could have PTSD. Our, our guest earlier is living with cancer. She yeah. is mm-hmm. a chronic right. PTSD of when the next yeah. shoe's going to drop right. and there's no answer. Yeah. Well, it's chronic triggers too. You know, part of, part of post-trauma is being triggered by things. And there's so many things in the experience of, you know, even going for a mammogram. It's really, it really gets people anxious, you know. And for this person having to go through it again, it's traumatic going through it again. Because there's all those days you remember that the way that gown felt and sitting on that table and waiting for that phone call and you're, you go into the really anxious place of post-trauma. And, you know, my doctor said to me something really interesting that has always, when you said, how do you kind of help each other with this? I think the biggest thing we can do for one another is name it and normalize it because people think they're going flipping insane. They're like, I'm done with treatment. Aren't I supposed to be clicking my heels and dancing a jig? I feel the exact opposite of that. I want to hide in my house. I don't want to see anyone. I'm, I am not used to the way that my body feels. I'm afraid. I'm exhausted. I'm burned in every way. Like you just feel scarred emotionally and psychologically and physically. And, you know, I think we don't get prepared for that. And I talked to my doctor about it one day and she said, you know, it's like you've been swinging from the monkey bars and each treatment and each radiation session and, you know, you're knocking down your chemo, you're knocking down your radiation, you're knocking down your surgery and your reconstruction, and then you're done and there's no more rings to grab onto. And then you're just floating through space and it's scary. I guess I have to ask you guys about the elephant in the room, which, and you were kind enough to put this in the notes here, the pink ribbon. And Oy. the, the well, you, all right, I think you answered my question with one grunt. But there is such a generational divide 
in what that mm -hmm. used to stand for, what it currently stands for, and how much weight it still carries. We do, obviously, we are a young adult group. We work with thousands of young breast cancer survivors and caregivers every single day. And no one really likes that anymore. I, I assume, based on your yeah. grunt, that you agree. Yeah, we do. And and one thing I'll add um, to it is that you know, something about Bayes, we have women of all stages and progression of disease, so stage zero to stage four, which is metastatic and incurable. And I think one thing that the pink ribbon does, it seems to diminish the the presence of women who are stage four and who are incurable. Like the pink ribbon to me symbolizes like, oh, if you're just happy and positive enough, then you'll be cured. Um, if you just buy a lot of pink products that you should feel good about, and all that money is going somewhere. You don't have to worry about where it's going. <laughs> but it, yeah. So I think that's something that really strikes our group that um, it's just inaccurate depiction um, of cheerful women on brochures wearing pink. Um, there's a really, yeah, go ahead. There's a really amazing group in the Bay Area that you may or may not know of called Breast Cancer Action. We love them. I support them. We go to everything they do. We, I mean, Karina Jagger and her team over there are just. They are top-notch. They are powerful people, and we love their work. Well, Barbara Brenner was an early mentor of mine years and years yeah. ago. So, oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. She taught me how to be a strategic oh douchebag and get job, get your job done. Oh, my God. Strategic <laughs> douchebag. Hilarious. No, I <laughs> mean, SD. yeah, Karuna and Angela Wall, we, we love them. They're on the show all the time. Yeah. They come to our conferences, yeah. and, and uh, it, it just speaks to how there are these these really exciting groups that you may or may not know of that have got our back, and they don't really care what the public thinks, and they're able right. to mm -hmm. shame the corporations that do the ridiculous stuff. And it's a great segue, Lori, because you work with our friends at Beauty Counter. Uh, Lindsay Dahl has been a really good friend of mine forever. Oh, my goodness. Um, I can't believe it. Yeah. I, I don't I don't know why or how I know everybody, but I do. And, and Lindsay and I go back to her days at Safe for Chemicals Healthy Families in D.C., and we, oh we fight the same fights as Breast Cancer Action does around toxicities and disparities and, and, and hypocrisies in corporate America and the government. So Fantastic. the citizen activism is, is, is uh, rife, and we're all doing good things. Yes. It's really, I, I'm so glad you know Lindsay. You probably know Mia Davis's work too then. Yeah, Campaign for Safe Cosmetics was one of the very yeah. first sort of um, offshoot campaigns that we did through our brand. And we got a couple of companies either shamed or shut down on Twitter. Uh, one of the things that Love I remember it. doing well with uh, Lindsay was I wrote, and I, I want to talk about your, your, you guys are writing a book through Bayes. And it's mm -hmm. edgy and it's disruptive and exactly in alignment with everything we stand for. I wrote an article for The Hill for Lindsay uh, and for Nancy Bjornmeyer at uh, the Breast Cancer Fund in D.C., which, which basically shut down a bill that was going to put the uh, American Chemistry Council at, at, at a, an advantage over policymakers. So, oh, my gosh. We got them Thank like, you. No, we got them like 200,000 signatures, and it was like that's – it's so exciting to have that. Like, yeah, we beat cancer, with, uh. but how do we get angry? And how do we stay angry? Well, it's that gra and, and how do you turn that grassroots? <clears throat> well, that's why people like Lindsay and Mia Davis and you know Greg Renfrew are so amazing. Is because they're saying, "Here's what you need to be. Here's what you need to know, and here's what you can do about it." And we're actually, you know, you can start to feel their, the tide is really going to turn. You know, and that's where just that thrilling feeling of grassroots activism, where you feel like, okay, we can, we're going to do this. We're going to move the market. We're going to increase awareness. We're going to help people stay safer. I mean, I'm on a damn mission to make sure some some people don't get breast cancer because they've at least decreased some aspects of their toxic load that they can. Right. Exactly. Megan, I assume you're on the same page as this. It makes sense, right? Yeah. yeah. I'm in. Megan, can you tell us about the books? You published you published two books. Yeah. My the day my nipple fell off. I love that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> shivering, <laughs> shivering in a paper gown. We all know that. Um, it it's it's just speaks to such a generational approach to humor and sincerity and authenticity. Right. Mm. So the the story of the books, um one of the Bay's presidents a few presidents ago, her name was Erin William Pyman, 
She died of breast cancer, complications from metastatic breast cancer. Erin was a writer, um, and she, we have a, Bayes has a listserv, an email listserv where, you know, anywhere from one to 20 emails are sent a day asking questions, ranting, venting, um, just providing support to each other. Erin saw the collective wisdom of that group and said, wow, these women have stories to tell. Um, and so she put out a call to the group several years ago and said, we're going to write a book. Um, and she worked with Lori, actually, to curate and edit the book, um, all personal narrative stories um, of women's experience in can- with cancer, with breast cancer. And that was the first collection, The Day My Nipple Fell Off. Um, the second collection we just published in September of 2015, Shivering in a Paper Gown. Um, and it... In that one, uh, those set of, we have over 30 authors and 30 plus essays. And that book is really around the aftermath of cancer and how cancer has such a long tail, whether you have stage four or stage one. um, There are so many issues and chronic issues, ongoing issues um, that survivors or whatever we want to call ourselves are experiencing. Um, and so that was yeah, launched in September, and they're both available on Amazon. We have a third book in the works um, because the women just have so many stories to tell, and they're so powerful. Um, and it is the title, it's going to be launched in this September 2016. And the title, Lori, is I Left a Boob on My Doorstep for You. Wow. That's awesome. <laughs> and the the titles of the book. Stay tuned, Matt. You're gonna have yeah, some days. new reading in September. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. Megan. What? Fair enough. The titles of the books are all pulled from the essays. All right, Megan Kalkara Campbell, young adult breast cancer survivor from San Francisco, president of the. Do Do you always just say Bay's because it's like I want to be able to say the the Bay Area Young Adult Survivors, right? That's the whole thing. Yeah. Bay's. Yeah. Awesome. Whatever. Either works. President of Bayes. Joining her was uh, Lori Pomerantz, uh, past board member of Bayes, and a uh, young adult breast cancer survivor herself. Thank you so much for helping us share all the great work that you do with our crowd. Thank Thank you for having us. All right. Take care. Have a good one. Take good care. Bye now. Bye. Bye. All right. Now it's time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show, our 387th episode of The Stupid Cancer Show. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes and following us on SoundCloud. I'd like to thank our guests, Alexis Score, Megan Kalkari Campbell, and Lori Hessen Pomeranz for joining us. Broadcasting since 2007, The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer, online at stupidcancer.org. Coming to you from the chemo deck, and on behalf of my team here at The Stupid Cancer Show, we have you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here on the next exciting podcast of The Stupid Cancer Show. 